My dog, you can't see him, but he, I just scared him twice. By clapping? Yeah, he's very... The dog's uh, got problems. Needs some Prozac. He's old. No, he needs uh, Prevagen. He's old. <laughs> Don't get <me> started. <laughs> Welcome once again to Free Associations from the Boston University School of Public Health, the Public Health and Medical Journal Club podcast for anyone who is as confused by the latest health study as I am by meteors that may have brought COVID to the world. Did you guys hear about this? Did you say that the, the world is confusing? Meteors. There was a paper that suggests that COVID was brought to the United States, uh, to the world, by meteors. I missed that paper. Where was that? The Journal of Irreproducible Results? I'm pretty sure it was. It certainly caused a, a firestorm of disbelief. Oh, seriously? Yeah. Yeah. Did you did you read the original paper? No, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> oh, anyway, I would like to. anyway, I am Matt Fox from the Departments of Epidemiology and Global Health, and I am here with Chris Gill from the Department of Global Health. Welcome, Chris. Hi, I only have one department. That is a good point. <laughs> and I am also here with uh, Don Thea from the Department of Global Health. Welcome, Don. Yes, I only have one department too. So the two of I, us I, equal you. I don't think you should feel jealous. We're, we are. Not, Don and I are each one half Fox unit. That that sounds about right. Is that in any way similar to Smoots? Uh, Smoots. <laughs> no, that's what's that like? A five foot ten guy who lay down across the bridge multiple times. That is the story. For anyone who doesn't know, the the yes. Smoots are a, a a guy who rolled all the way across the MIT bridge here in Boston, and they measured out the entire bridge in Smoots. Is that what he did? He rolled across, or he lay down over and over, or something. Head to toe, head to toe, head oh, to head toe. Oh, head to toe. Well, that makes more sense, actually. Anyway, as a reminder, if you could all head over to the Population Health Exchange website at www.pophealthex.org. That's BU's hub for lifelong learning. And uh, you'll find lots of interesting stuff there. And then as another reminder, go ahead and rate us on iTunes or all your other major podcast sites. We haven't gotten a review in a while, and I'm starting to feel neglected. I don't know about you guys. But we did get a, a, a nice email from... That Nick Guler just read to us. We did, and we love those. It totally makes our day. Anyway, now on to the show. So today in our first segment, which is our Journal Club segment, we are going to look at a study on vitamin D supplementation on the risk of getting tuberculosis. Then in the second part of the podcast, which is our deep dive, we'll talk about citation hacking and whether or not that is in fact a thing. And then in our third segment, which is our amazing and amusing, we will get into some things that make us laugh out loud or just we found amazing. So let's do segment one. We're going to talk about an article that looked at the impact of vitamin D on prevention of tuberculosis published in the New England Journal of Medicine, and it was entitled Vitamin D Supplements for Prevention of Tuberculosis Infection and Disease by first author Dabasambu uh, Ganma of the Department of Nutrition at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. So a couple of headlines on this one. Medscape says vitamin D supplementation in deficient children fails to lower tuberculosis risk, and the two-minute medicine says vitamin D supplementation not associated with lower risk of tuberculosis in school-aged children. So, Chris, can you start us off by telling us what this study was all about and what they found? Sure. It's just kind of an interesting trial because it's testing a very curious hypothesis that, that actually has been bouncing around for a long time about the relationship between vitamin D and tuberculosis risk. So, vitamin D, pretty much everyone will have heard of. It's, it's a hormone 
that has all sorts of interesting effects in the body. And, and one of the, you know, the, the main ones is regulating calcium. And it has a role also in, in bone development. But vitamin D is a steroid hormone, which means it's, it's, it's derived from a cholesterol background with some modification of side chains. And steroid horm hormones, as a, as a rule, do all sorts of stuff in the body. So that it's rare that you'll find like one effect. And, and in vitamin D's case, it has uh, apparently some effects uh, related to the function of macrophages in the innate immune system. Deficiency of vitamin D is supposed to lead to sort of a, a, a slight immunosuppressant state. But curiously, I've seen arguments recently where vitamin D is, is considered to be a counter-regulatory hormone for the innate immune system, meaning that it damps down the innate immune mm. system. So uh, it, it's, it's, it's a curious thing, and I, and I don't know enough about the biology of vitamin D to know whether it might actually be possible that these, these are both true. But in any case, vitamin D deficiency in epidemiologic studies has been shown to be associated with uh, all sorts of TB metrics, including, you know, getting tuberculosis or converting your, your skin test or having a, a conversion to a positive quantiferon test, which is considered to be a more specific test than the, the, the purified protein derivative skin prick that we're more familiar with. And that vitamin D also might be associated, like low levels of vitamin D might also be, you know, associated with poor TB outcomes. So, but, but again, as with all of these things, these are, are largely based on, on uh, observational studies. Uh, and there's a tremendous opportunity here for confounding because vitamin D deficiency could be associated with general protein calorie malnutrition and just be another sign of poverty that you're not getting enough milk in your diet or enough calcium or cheese or high protein foods with vitamin D in them in your diet. And all of those are, you know, clearly things that could explain higher rates of TB. And so the question was, was ultimately uh, set to a, a formal experimental test. Uh, which is reported in this article, Vitamin D Supplements for Prevention of Tuberculosis Infection and Disease, by first author Gan Ma. And I should just say that this was uh, the first paper I have seen published in the New England Journal of Medicine that was, that was conducted in Mongolia. Mm -hmm. so, so I think that that's kind of an interesting feature to this. And the study was, was all Mongolian children. And the basic hypothesis was, or the, the structural design, was they randomized kids to get weekly oral mega supplements of vitamin D, by which I mean they received 18,000 international units. To put that in, in context, when you go to CVS and you get some vitamin D, it's usually about 1,000 microgram or international units per, per dose. So this would be twice what you would get if you were taking daily vitamin D supplements uh, at home. So it's, it's quite a large dose. But they, they did this one week at a time. And the reason they did it weekly is that they wanted to to be able to control and observe whether the kids were actually taking the vitamin D. They wanted to know, I guess, that if the experiment failed, it wasn't because they didn't actually take the, the experimental drug. And so they did weekly observed administration, either of vitamin D or, or of a placebo. And this was a placebo-controlled double-blind trial. And then they did that every week for uh, an entire year. And each time they, uh, for three years, and each time that the kids came back, they would ask them, you know, have you had any symptoms? Have you developed any respiratory symptoms in particular? Looking for opportunities to identify incipient tuberculosis. And at the end of the three-year period, they did a, uh, another quantifuron test. I should mention, this is very important, in fact, that at the, at the baseline, they excluded kids who already had a, quantif a positive quantifuron test. So the quantifuron test is, is, a, is a much more sophisticated version of the TB detection screening test that we are familiar with, where you take uh, patients' lymphocytes and you expose them to tuberculosis antigens. And if they have seen them before and have 
acquired memory to them, they will respond by releasing a lot of gamma interferon cytokine. And if they, if they do that, then you say, aha, this is a person whose immune system has encountered TB, ergo they have been exposed and infected with TB. And so what they wanted to see is how many of those, the kids in the two groups, went from a negative quantifuron test at the start to a positive quantifuron test at the end. That was the basic design. And there were some subtle permutations in there. For one, they looked at two different thresholds for the quantifuron test. The manufacturer recommends 0.35 micrograms as the cutoff for a positive test. But they also looked at four, so a much higher threshold, reasoning that the 0.35 could be prone to some false positives. So they went for a more specific, but probably is presumably less sensitive. Uh, result. And they also looked to see if there was a nonspecific effect of vitamin D supplementation on respiratory diseases, you know, irrespective of, t- of TB specifically. So they ran the study for three years. Then, and, and I have to say that I, I thought it was quite a rigorously done study. They had, uh, you know, low rates of, of dropout and loss to follow-up. They had high capture rate. They were able to document that the, you know, the kids who were supposed to be taking their medicines, that 91% of the medicines that were supposed to have been given, were given. And at the end, they also tested their vitamin D levels and found that in the intervention arm, their vitamin D levels were much higher than the ones in the control arm. So they could prove that the medicine, had the vitamin D, had gone into these, these kids' systems. The randomization appeared to be very well balanced. So I, I, I feel like in terms of the mechanics of the randomized control trial, they did a great job, which makes the results a little bit more, more, more sad in a way because the vitamin D didn't accomplish anything in any of their endpoints. Straight down the line, there was no effect of the vitamin D, either in terms of interferon, the quantifuron conversion at the 0.35 or the 4 IU per mil levels, or being initiated on treatment for TB, or being diagnosed clinically as having TB, and there was also no impact whatsoever on the frequency of uh, reported or observed diagnosed respiratory infections. And so, you know, in terms of testing the, the primary hypothesis, vitamin D showed no evidence whatsoever of having any impact at all on the occurrence of new tuberculosis infections. But an interesting and well-done study, I thought. Yeah, I I share your feeling that this was a a pretty well-done study. Interestingly enough, one of the things that I wrote down in my notes here was that this kind of felt like the most straightforward study we've read in a long time. It was sort of like, basically, you you go in, you randomize kids into two groups, you give them the, the vitamin D, you follow them up, and you find out whether or not they got tuberculosis. It's sort of like textbook for how we would describe how to do a randomized trial in in class which i thought was was made it very easy to read don what was your take on this study yeah i i agree with both of you guys i i thought it was a it was a very straightforward very kind of vanilla but extremely well thought out and well done study to address a question that uh, has been sort of floating around for a while just in terms of the mechanics of doing the study, there was one thing that I picked up that I didn't quite understand, and that was in the method section when they calculated the size of the cohort that they would need when they're doing their sample size assessment. They did in the first line of the statistical analysis section. It says assuming a two percent annual risk of tuberculosis infection. Then in the limitation section under discussion, they say. Our trial had some limitations. A 3.5% incidence of QFT, the quantifuron test that Chris was referring to, conversion as defined by an interferon gamma level at or above the threshold value of 0.35 was lower than the anticipated incidence of 5.9%, which rendered our trial as potentially underpowered. 
So I don't understand why they used 2% incidence to generate the sample size and then report that the study is underpowered when you consider it uh, consider an incidence of 5.9%. So I, I believe, I, yeah, that doesn't make any sense, does it? Uh, no, no, uh, no, no, no. I, th I think it does. I think it does. Uh, so it's a 2% annual risk of TB. And they ran the trial, I think, over three years. Right. That's right. So so the idea here is that uh, you would expect roughly a 6%. Got it. Got it. But okay. interesting, Don, that you up. went to that because I actually I, I highlighted that and I thought you were going to go in a different direction with that, which is they said they assumed a 2% annual risk of tuberculosis. So over three years, that gets you to roughly a 5.9 or 6% risk. But they also assumed an 18% risk of loss to follow up. I right. mean, can you really do a study <laughs> of a 2% or in this case, 6% risk of, of tuberculosis when you expect... 18% loss follow-up. Now, to be fair to them, the loss follow-up was lower. It was only about 10%. Yeah. But still, that's you know almost double the the expected rate end of uh, tuberculosis. So, yeah. you know that part worries me. Even though even though 10% 10 <laughs> percent is actually pretty low for a trial, it still yeah. is problematic when your event rate is low. I, I put yeah. a circle around that statistic, but for a different reason, which was that I I was like. Eighteen percent is a is a is a awfully specific loss to follow up rate. Like why why eighteen percent? Why not like 10, 15, 20, some right. round on off? I mean, I know it right. doesn't matter, right. but it it seems like you know, like Stephen Colbert would say it sounds it's a, it's a, it sounds truthy. Yeah. But it also made me wonder whether there was some post hocism going on there that let, allowed them to back into the eighteen percent. I don't know, but I, oh, it was a was funny the, was funny the, number. That was the other comment that I had, because what they did is they did, in fact, report on a post-hoc analysis of there seemed to be some sort of effect maybe in the group of children who's, who had very low vitamin D levels. But I thought it was responsible for them to point that out, but I thought in the discussion they handled it quite well, and they said it really needs to be you know, evaluated with caution, and it might be more hypothesis generating than anything else. But that's an example of, you know, I think we're... we're the authors are putting it in the right context. Yeah, but but just sort of to, to riff on that a little bit, each of the analyses that I, I summarized earlier on, I just gave, gave the overall response rate between the placebo and the intervention, but they also stratified these based on on whether the people in each group were were vitamin D deficient at baseline. Right, and you know, and that that probably matters because I I, I would I would assume that vitamin D supplementation wouldn't matter very much unless you were vitamin D deficient to begin with. So it, it can't necessarily help you unless you have the problem to start with. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. with almost you know, with very few exceptions, the vitamin D deficient people didn't show that much effect either. Or when they did, there were some big confidence intervals around them. But there were a couple exceptions where it, it seemed in that unique subset to be possibly uh, effective, you know? You know, the, the other thing that struck me in reading through this was how, and you, you alluded to this, Chris, how, how there was a, a bunch of, of observational data that suggested in certain circumstances, certain, uh, certain aspects of measuring TB illness and prevention and all the rest of that stuff, that there really wasn't there there, that vitamin D really did seem to have some sort of effect on tuberculosis. And here we have a phase three, well-done, double-blind, randomized controlled trial, which shows nothing, yeah. in essence, absolutely nothing. And it just it made it so, so clear to me that this is the kind of science that we need to be de deciding policy on, you know, not the, not the observational studies done on hydroxychloroquine for COVID or mm. for you know, hyperimmune globulin for COVID. This is such a good example of why 
really hard rigorous science is, is important. Yeah. In fact, two, two of those previous randomized control trials were done by the same group. The ones that they right. cite are actually them. Right. Right. But the, so I, I, was, I was curious, like, why, you know, why are we seeing such a, a striking null result when they're citing such positive preliminary results? Why are they still asking the question, in other words? So I went back and pulled those two papers. And one of the studies was really small. It's like 100 kids, maybe 120 kids. And so it was just totally underpowered to detect anything. And the second one, which showed a positive effect on, on PPD conversion rather than quantifieron uh, conversion, and uh, also on, on, I think, respiratory illness rates was where this, the vitamin D supplementation came in the form of milk. So that right. the intervention group got milk and the control group didn't get milk. But right. like milk is like super healthy protein slurry. It's good for you in so many ways. And so they, there's no way to tease out the effect of the vitamin D as opposed to like feeding kids. Um, mm. And I don't think anyone would argue that feeding kids is a, is, is a you know, is a is, is going to have anything but a positive result on almost any outcome. So, you know, I think we're generally pro pro feeding kids for sure. Um, so, okay. So yeah. let me go back feeding for good. a second because yeah, let me go back for a second because I, I raised this issue before of, you know, is it possible that the lost follow-up rate, which was about 10% is contributing to the, it, let's just pretend for a moment that there was some, actually some small effect of vitamin D supplementation, but you know, but because you only had uh, 3.6% of the population developing TB and you had 10% loss to follow up, maybe that effect gets lost because you just have, you know, lost follow up between the arms that biases towards the null. Now, I I tried to logic it out in, in my small brain as to how that actually would play out. And it theoretically seems possible to me. But probably not. Probably not likely. Mm -hmm. um, so, what's your take home, Matt? Would you? Is there a rule of thumb that you can sort of flesh out in terms of uh, low event rate and loss of follow up rates? Well, no. I mean, so there's no there's no rule of thumb so much as let's just pretend for the moment that the kids who were who were lost to follow up just happened to be very likely to have had tuberculosis, and that has something to do with why they were lost to follow up, and somehow. Mm -hmm. The differences were dramatically different between those who got vitamin D supplementation and those who didn't. Then, then sure, you could you could have a difference. But given that it was a, a placebo-controlled trial, it seems to me unlikely that that the kids who dropped out with tuberculosis were differential across arms. So now you're talking about just again biasing towards no effect. Still, I just find it hard to imagine that. There's much going on that we're missing because of the loss to follow up, but it strikes me as not impossible, I guess, is where I, I come down on this. Which is it sort of underscores the reason why we do blinded studies. Right. Yeah, and I, I think that's right, but I think it it you know, you can never you can never completely rule out that something is being missed when you have that much loss to follow up. Because again, even if it's even if it's balanced across the arms. It could just be biasing towards no effect. There is, you know, and this was a null finding, so it's possible there is something going on. But again, I I, I have no reason to to believe that's what's happening. I'm just saying it, it throws a little bit of um, a doubt in my mind. Yeah, I just want to mention one other thing, and that is, uh, you know, when you go to PubMed and you and you bring up a, a paper, I, I went to PubMed, brought this paper up, and as I was looking across the page, 
that little button at the bottom that says, um, would you like to look at other studies that are very similar? And so I pushed that button and a whole bunch of randomized controlled trials of vitamin D with different outcomes came up. And mm-hmm. I just wanted to list the number of papers in that list that had no results in terms of vitamin D efficacy for a beneficial effect. So it had no effect against gut cancer, no effect against type 2 diabetes, no effect against TB with HIV, no effect with uh, overall mortality in the elderly, with sickle cell disease, with COPD, with critically ill people with respect to mortality, viral URIs in healthy kids, prevention of cancer and heart disease, colorectal adenomas. And in fact, there was one study that found that there was an increased risk of falling in the elderly. Oh, really? With, with supplementation. Well, that's... So it sort of brings up the question, you know, is it, did they really expect to see a finding with respect to vitamin D and tuberculosis? Yeah. It just seems like there's an overwhelming amount of evidence to suggest that even people who were deficient in these vitamins don't seem to have a, a general generally beneficial effect on these specific diseases. Yeah, it almost makes you want to like go back and do a randomized controlled trial to see if vitamin D actually prevents rickets too. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> You're starting the, the evidence is starting to pile up on the vitamin D doesn't do anything side. Right. And we, right. we, we, we looked at uh, fractures a couple of years ago. And, um, That's right. And nothing, as I recall. So why, why does my doctor keep telling me to take vitamin D? Uh, no. Why not? Oh. And there's a, there are there's a lot of talk about taking vitamin D to pre, to prevent COVID, to have a better outcome with COVID. Yeah, because yeah. because interferon apparently is 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 blocked particularly in people with vitamin D, and that's a really important factor with respect to COVID. But, but it mm-hmm. might it might forestall the so-called cytokine storms in Storm, some right. complicated way, and maybe it will. Maybe this will be the exception. But you know, you're right, Don. The you know the the, the there aren't a whole lot of successes here. And the, the, the vitamin D is good for anything other than Ricketts literature at this point. But a well done study. But a very well done study. Okay, so, Yet so let me thing go that back. vitamin D does not do is prevent TB. So let me. Let me <laughs> so let, Sorry. Let me, okay, so let me go back to, to the, the issue that I think uh, Don raised earlier about the subgroup analysis that they did. So let me just read this to you so that it's in the record. So it says, however, subgroup analysis of quantiferon conversion, so testing positive for tuberculosis, at the threshold of four international units per millimeter raised the possibility that children with a baseline vitamin D level below 10 nanograms per milliliter, the risk of quantiferon conversion at this higher cutoff was lower among children assigned to receive vitamin D than those assigned to the placebo. Uh, adjusted risk ratio of 0.41, 95% confidence interval from 0.17 to 0.99. Okay, so if I'm getting this right, this would suggest that while there was no overall effect, there there is the possibility of an effect in kids with what? Higher or lower baseline levels of, lower. of uh, lower. vitamin D? Lower. Yeah, but so the more on. vitamin the more vitamin D deficient you are, the the you know, there's a possibility that this actually does work. Do you do you buy this? No, no, no. This is this is like this is you know, by almost by definition data dredging. You know, they yeah. they bombed yeah. on everything else, and now we're like not in a sub analysis, but we're in a stratified sub analysis. 
And we're and, and you know and we're talking very no numbers here. So like to put it in comparison, when they did their main effects analysis around the 0.35 level, the overall numbers of TB versus not you know cases in the two groups were 147, 134 in the you know in the vitamin D and placebo respectively. Now when we're down into the the interferon greater than four, which is a much higher bar, now we're down to the level of seven versus 17. So really tiny numbers. And yes, you know, it barely crosses one in terms, uh, it fails to cross one on the confidence interval. But but let's, you know, you, you would you would call foul on that a million times over. That okay, at this so point, you, we're you're... just like, we're just desperate to see something, you know, to justify the next trial. Okay, and first I was confused, Chris. You're saying it's a subset of a subset because it is subsetted to both those with, very low baseline uh, right. so this, vitamin this, D levels. The subset analysis also, is the interferon, interferon gamma levels greater than four, right? So their, their primary analysis is the 0.35 level. And so they've chosen four based on some paper they read in the literature that said that maybe four is better. Fine. But then, the, then you know, within that, the overall analysis of the greater than or equal to four does not show a significant benefit. And so now they're like, okay, within, you know, greater than four, within those people who are baseline deficient. So now we're like, that's the second sub-analysis. Okay, but I don't think that's actually a second sub-analysis. I just think what they did was they changed the definition of conversion for this analysis. But I think they're, they're only subsetting the data once. Yeah, well... I'm, but, I, but I take your point. I think we're we're down into the into the yeah. into the world of very small numbers, and we know that when the numbers get small, the event rates, you know, the absolute event rates are so low that like small differences can flip the confidence intervals and go from significant to insignificant in a heartbeat. And so at this point, I just start saying, like, come on, so, let's so let's stop pushing this so far. And I agree with everything you just said there, Chris. Is it enough to be hypothesis generating? In other words, is there enough there that you would say it's worth a study in kids specifically with this, with the very low uh, vitamin D levels using a lower threshold for quantiferon? Sure. Well, let, let's be fair. You know, so if I was this group trying to write a grant to the NIH to do a, a follow-on project to look at this sub-analysis in the you know, with the high-level quantifuron conversions in the patients who are baseline vitamin D deficient, I would have to acknowledge what Don has said before, that there's a string of dozens of failed randomized controlled trials showing that, that vitamin D doesn't really help, and now this, this big mega study, which must have cost a lot of money showing that vitamin D didn't help. I think it would be very hard to justify this over, say, you know, uh, you know a, a new COVID uh, study. Uh, to me, this feels like the question you know, that we keep driving nails into the coffin on this one. How many nails mm -hmm. do we have to drive before we start to say that the biological plausibility is starting to break down and that this is probably not true? Let's, let's apply some, you know, let's learn from what we've learned here and not just say that any like, you know, interesting result that pops up in a sub-analysis is somehow going to like drive the next trial. At some point we should say like, you know, is the question not answered already? I it doesn't really work. Chris, I agree with what you're saying, but I think you are being a little hard on these guys. <laughs> you know, I, I think that it's it, it's an observation, and I think not including it in the paper uh, would not be right. I think including it is correct, and and I think thought that they they handled it responsibly by saying, however, the results yeah. of the subgroup analysis should be interpreted with caution, given that this analysis was performed post hoc and there was no adjustment for multiple comparisons. They don't mention the very small cell size, but at least they 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 they, they are cautious about it. Yep.
No, I would agree. And I, I do think overall, this was a, it was a well-designed trial and, and certainly provides reasonably convincing evidence. I think that this is, this is not effective. And I think we should, we should probably leave it at that. Though I do want to end by just going back to where Chris started, which is doing, uh, I've never read a New England Journal of Medicine article before uh, with a study conducted in Mongolia. And I it got me a bit nostalgic for my Peace Corps days when I was in Turkmenistan, which is not the same as Mongolia, but there are certainly some similarities. And I do wonder how hard it was to to do a study in Ulaanbaatar. I also wondered, you know, presumably they did this in Ulaanbaatar because, I mean, partly probably because of connections, but because it's a country that is so far north, you would expect low low vitamin D levels. Is that right? Well, they did have a very high baseline rate of, of low vitamin D. So it seems like vitamin D deficiency yeah. is chronic there. Yeah. 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 One of the, one of the things that, about this study being done in, in Ulaanbaatar that I thought was cool was that in, in Table 1, they got to tell us how many people lived in yurts. Yep. Which 37, was? 37% in both groups, essentially, lived in yurts. And the other, the other item that I thought was a little curious was that they actually listed in Table 1 the number of children that were actively smoking. Oh, children! I missed that. What was so, so, so these were what six to eleven-year-olds. Wow! So what percentage was it? Forty-seven overall of the children were actively smoking, and it was twenty-six in the vitamin D group and twenty-one in the placebo group. Okay, so so a low number, like but half that's a percent, still, but still, but that still. you would even think to ask that question. I mean, wow! Right. This is this is the this is like Tatum O'Neill and Paper Moon. <laughs> that's right. I don't get that reference, but I will. Uh, well, it, I will accept the young it. Tatum O'Neill famously smokes at the age of around eight in this movie. Oh, yeah. in the movie. All right. Well, let's let's move on from there and move on to our second segment, where we're going to talk about an article that was looking at something called citation hacking. It was published in was it in Nature or Nature? Nature, Nature Proper. Nature Proper. So the idea being that. You know, sometimes you find that scientists care a lot about whether or not their work is cited or not. And, you know, there there have been cases where scientists have been found to have been working hard to get people to cite their work. So I think we all have been in situations where we have submitted our work for peer review. It comes back and there are the anonymous peer review comes back and there is a request we should include all of these citations and you notice that all of them seem to have the same author listed and you start to wonder whether that is the person who is in fact your peer reviewer. And there certainly have been been examples of, of this happening. And so you know, these authors were interested in looking at whether or not there were ways to study whether citation patterns could be uh, detected to be manipulated in some way. And so they they looked for what they referred to as these sort of red flag indicators, such as when researchers frequently receive blocks of consecutive citations in other papers or get disproportionately many citations from one journal. And they certainly um, claim that they have been able to find examples of this. They do acknowledge, of course, that it is a difficult thing to study and that, you know, it would be hard to say for sure exactly what's going on in each of these different papers. But I thought it was an interesting thing because of this situation that I raised in the beginning where I, I find that I am really annoyed when I get back a request to add a whole bunch of citations to my paper that all seem to be coming from one person. So I want to I want to start with just your experiences with this and then 
Chris, I'm going to come back to you and ask what, what you actually thought of this article because I know you have some strong feelings. But Don, have you have you been in this situation where you've been pressured to add citations before? Yeah, not that often, but it has happened. And I, you know, I'm, I guess I've been totally naive to this topic because I never put two and two together. I never thought that oh, really? those requests were were nefarious or self serving in any way. I just sort of like, well, yeah, the title seems like it's appropriate. You know, it sort of fits in, and I don't really oftentimes question it. So uh, I don't. I don't have a real deep experience in this. Chris, what about you? I I have experienced it on a few occasions, but I. To my memory, I don't think any of them were struck me as egregious. I, they they felt like like sensible suggestions. And indeed, when I pulled the papers, I'm like, oh yeah, this is this is I should have known about this. And and mm -hmm. I've been in the opposite situation where you know you've been asked to review someone's paper, and you know that's because you're an expert in the topic that they're writing about, and you find that they have not cited a key paper that you wrote that is actually clearly very relevant to the thing that they're talking about. And so I, mm -hmm. I have suggested that they refer to some of my own citations. I don't think I've ever done it as a, like, please cite the collected works of, of the wise C.J. Gill. Um, <laughs> I, I haven't gone that far. I, and, and so I think, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a spectrum of behavior here and, and not all of it is necessary malfeas malfeasance. Some of it is part of the, the reason why you were selected as a reviewer. But the thing that kind of irritated me about what they were describing here is the, is the implication that they're, you're kind of being blackmailed into it. That because they have your, you know, your fate in their hands, because these are the reviewers of the journal, or sometimes the editors of the journal, we're trying to bully you into citing their papers. And it's not to make your paper better; it's simply to get more citations for them. I think that's kind of, a, you know, where it becomes a little bit sleazy. Hmm. So I, I have to say, I've only ever once uh, asked somebody to add a citation to a paper of my own. And it was, you know, it was one case where I thought, you know, there's a pretty good reason why they wouldn't know about this. It just came out. And so I listed it, but I also was up front that it was my paper. And I said, it's up to the, to the authors, whether or not to include it. So, so Chris, what, what did you actually think of the methods? I, you know, I guess they, they, they cite their own limitation several times, which is that there's no ground truth, right? All they're looking at is, is sort of, you know, skewness from what, what from a predicted distribution of behaviors, and so the the problem is that you can't really interpret at the end. Like, you know, does this support their thesis that there are some bad actors? Probably, but it, I don't know. All in all, I found it. I was I was sort of more puzzled than convinced by the end of it that they'd really found something. And and in the few cases that they cited where they'd sort of like dug into the details and it seemed very egregious. I was like, yeah, okay, they got that guy that, you know, that, that guy is guilty. But for the rest of it, I, since they hadn't done that, I, I was sort of like scratching my head and wondering what to make of it and, and not entirely persuaded. So you're not, you're not convinced that either this is a particularly big problem or that there was a lot of evidence of it going on here. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. It does strike me that this is, you know, in my experience, it's something, as I said, I've come across, but I don't, uh, I wouldn't say it happens very often. So I would, I would kind of, my prior going into it is I would be surprised if this was a major issue. And, you know, just, a, it, it seems to me like there is the, the chance for this to, to be overblown. Yeah. Don, what, what about you? Yeah, no, what, what I was going to say was that, you know, being on the AMP committee at Boston University. Um, Promotions I, committee. Promotions committee, right. You know, the, the metrics 
of achievement for promoting a faculty member have changed over time. And it used to be, you know, how many papers did that publish and what were the, you know, what's the impact factor of, of the journals? But now because generating these statistics have become so sort of automatic and so accessible, we now have, we now have H indexes and we have number of citations. And so I, I can completely understand how, how, you know, nefarious faculty members with nefarious uh, motivations would see this as an important way to tip the balance in terms of getting promoted. You know, so it's something that is, you know, is, is important to consider because that might be something that uh, people could, could really twist to their own advantage. Well, I agree uh, about that because I was most struck by, by the implication of this analysis and the focus on it, which is that, like, ha have we all gone mad? You know, surely we are, we are like, there are yeah, people out there who are way too obsessed with their citation indices. And if they're playing all these games, either like they're crazy to be doing so because this is like taking things to a ridiculous extreme or that the, the incentives that have been created in universities are absolutely bonkers and they have no choice. I don't yeah. know which one it is, but like either way, the situation seems insane. So my assumption is that anytime you build a metric that you use to try and monitor for for promotion or, or other benefit to people, there will always be some people who will uh, manipulate that for sure. And that manipulation might not necessarily always be nefarious. I mean, it could be as simple as just saying, okay, I want to I want to write my studies in such a way that that they get picked up for meta-analyses when, you know, the topic is meta-analyzed or, you know, I want to write something that is very, very broad so it'll be cited in the introduction of papers or whatever it is. There are, if you are focused on the idea of getting citations, you could probably maximize your work to try and get the most citations. And that isn't necessarily the same as as telling people you must cite my work. So I don't, I don't know that the problem is necessarily always nefarious so much as it's, it may just be strategic in some cases. I, I am curious like about the, the you know, the, the event rates impact here, right? How many times do you have to like get yourself cited before it has any impact on your H index? Like what's the, how big is your crowbar? If you were like say at some journal and you had access to this and every one, you know, every 500th paper that came past your desk had something vaguely to do with your research where you could play this game. How many times would you have to do that? And how many papers would you have to generate before it had any impact at all? It seems like this is sort of like throwing, yeah. shooting peas at a, at a train. <laughs> I like that analogy. I do think you're right, Chris. I mean, I, I think there is the potential for certain people to manipulate it quite a bit but overall i think it's it just strikes me as un, unlikely for the average person and i you know my end assessment is this is probably not something we need to spend too much time worrying about there's a lot more to worry about yeah covid-19 worries me a lot yeah fair enough fair enough okay so that's i mean good news cuz normally we come away from these things totally pessimistic and think it's another indication that our uh, our academic world is is imminently corruptible. And this one, I, I think, you know, we came away with the idea that it's probably actually not that big of a deal. And uh, let's chalk that up as a, as a win. Yeah. Still, we're, you know, the, the crisis, the magnitude of the crisis cannot be estimated. The magnitude of which crisis? Uh, the uh, academic uh, process. So things are still terrible, but this paper <laughs> doesn't make it any worse. Wow. <laughs> Thanks for uh, taking, my, <laughs> taking my attempt at optimism. <laughs> 
and just blowing a hole in it. Really yeah, appreciate that. I got a, I got oh, a special better. hammer for That's smashing for sure. your optimism to bits. I always thought it was Don's job to be the the ultimate pessimist, <laughs> the naysayer. Yeah. Yeah. Well. All right. Well, shall we move on then to our third segment, which is our amazing and amusing. Don, you want to go first this time? Yes, I would love to go first. All right. So I have a paper that was published in the International Journal of Cancer in 2003 by Silvano Gallus, Christina Bossetti, uh, Renato Talmini, and Carlo Lavecchia. All of the authors are from both Naples and Milan, and the importance of where they're from will be borne out when I tell you what this paper is about. So, And, they and just analyzed, to be clear, you just said both? They're from both of these places or either of these places? Either of these places. Okay, some, got it, some got of, it. I think some are from both, but most of them are from either. Which, there, which of the places, also, again? It's Milan, Italy, and Naples. Naples. Got it. Okay, got it. All right, so they had a case control study that was being conducted in Italy between 1991 and 2000 where they um, listed cancer rates, cancer of the oral cavity and the pharynx, the esophagus, the larynx, the colon, and the rectum with controls of about 5,000 individuals versus the 598 cases of patients admitted for acute neoplastic conditions to the same hospital network as the case non-neoplastic conditions. So it's, so it's cancer and not cancer, cancer of these various sorts. And so what they did was they, um, in this case control study, they administered a questionnaire which contained a whole lot of demographic information, but it also contained a validated 78-item food frequency questionnaire mm-hmm. that included specific questions on pizza. Mm. Oh, well, that makes P- sense. Pizza huh. consumption. So for the present analyses, they essentially looked at the responses to the pizza questions, which were pizza eating was classified in three categories. Non-eaters, which is less than one portion of pizza per month. Occasional eaters, which is one to three portions per month, and then regular eaters, which was one portion of pizza or more per week, which in my book is not a regular. That's a rare pizza eater. Yeah, I was going to say. That's a very (laughs) – I've eaten eaten pizza three times this week alone. Right. This is is the (laughs) definition of pizzapedia. So for for you guys, this will be extremely good news. So they found that the odds ratio for regular pizza consumers – were the following. For oral and pharyngeal cancer, the odds ratio was 0.66. Wow. Excellent news. For esophageal cancer, it was 0.82. For laryngeal cancer, it was 0.74. Colon cancer, 0.93. And for rectal cancer, 0.68. So protective. In all cases, protective. In every single case, it was protective. Well... I just want to say that, like, we talked about observational studies and how, like, the whole thing skews you towards thinking that vitamin D cures everything. And that's right. all true for that literature. But in this case, I'm sure it's correct. It's 100% correct. There's no, and I don't no think doubt we need about any randomized it. controlled trials because it's so obvious oh. to be. <laughs> and beer probably helps too. So then the authors try to justify it. They say the favorable influence on the risk of neoplasms investigated may therefore be related to tomatoes or olive oil, which have been shown to be inversely associated with the risk of various cancers, including those of the digestive tract. Cooked tomatoes, and especially tomato sauce, are rich in lycopene, a carotenoid that has been shown inversely related to cancer of the prostate in the U.S. They go on to continue to justify it. I thought this was the best piece of creative writing I have seen in a long time. I would like to see this study further stratified by the pizza topping. By pepperoni? 
I would like to know that pepperoni is in fact protective. I, would, I, I bet def- I mean, I, eggplant has to be. Well, I think, no, I think ab, uh, no. anchovies, of course, because they're of filled course. with omega three fatty acids. <laughs> there you go. No pepperoni. It's pepperoni or or, or nothing. Wow, this is great news. Made, Thanks, Don. Great news, isn't it? Made my day. Yeah, I believe it. it. Made my week with all my heart. <laughs> All right, Chris, what do you got for us? Well, I, it's not really an amazing and amusing per se, but I was listening to a uh, another podcast, which I really like, uh, TWIV, This Week in Biology. Oh, yeah, that's a great, great podcast. That is a great podcast. And they were interviewing Michael Mina uh, about, and he was talking oh, yeah. about his his uh, his argument for why oh, such a good you, argument. Need to, you need to test frequently uh, against COVID-19 COVID. and why yep. paradoxically our reliance on, on a very sensitive and but technically sophisticated PCR can kind of get you into trouble. And it was such an elegant argument that I, I'm going to repeat it here, but I, I just wanted to apologize to Professor Mina that I may botch it, and it, but it is not for a sincere lack of appreciation for his work and for trying my best. And, you know, this is actually getting a lot of traction, Chris. It's really, it is. It, it's, it's really you know, it's been in the Times, in the Post. You know, it's been in a lot of places. And even Giraud, who's the head of the COVID testing effort, has recognized it and is looking into it. Okay. Well, let me try to sort of summarize the, the crux of the argument. And I'm going to use a metaphor that Michael Mina did not use. So here's my in, individual contribution. So the whole thing comes down to the kinetics of, of viral load over time. And, and I'm going to, uh, the metaphor is the rocket ship and the parachute. So like, you know, when a rocket ship takes off, you know, it, 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 it's sitting there on the ramp and all, the, all this smoke is coming out and fire and stuff, but the rocket's not really moving very much until it finally groans into motion and starts to rise. And then it rises very quickly and then it rises really quickly and goes, and off it goes, you know? And so it's going thousands of miles an hour before you say boo. Okay. So that, that is a little bit akin to like logarithmic growth of a virus over time where you get exposed at time zero, shall we say. And then if you measure the virus in that person's throat over time, you would like probably not detect anything for several days. But then because of the weird kinetics of exponential growth, the virus will suddenly seem to take off and go whoosh and go from like undetectable to millions of copies per mil of saliva in a very short period of time, like within a day. Woof. Off it goes. But then when it sort of peaks and the immune system taps in, this is where the, sort of the metaphor of the parachute comes in, where the parachutes deploy and the rocket drifts slowly back to the ground. And so the front end of this curve is sort of flat and then whoosh, super steep, like, like a rocket ship. And then the back end of this curve is slow and ponderous as the rocket ship, in this case COVID-19 levels, slowly come back down to Earth. And that can that drift down process can last a couple of weeks, where the takeoff process probably takes about a day. Now, his his point is that PCR is is super sensitive, and if we're testing PCR being the test that we normally use, right, the gold standard, right? It, it you know the for example the Broad Institute's PCR test they claim can get you down to sixty viral copies per mil of saliva, which is a very 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 low concentration. So it's like it's wicked con- it's it's very very sensitive test. But the thing is that, that you know, in, in infectious diseases and in COVID-19 and all infectious diseases, the, the dose of the inoculum that you're exposed to matters a lot, right? So we don't live in a binary world where if you're exposed to any COVID-19, you're going to get infected. You need to have enough COVID-19 that it's going to get its way through your innate immune defenses, which are saturable. So they have a certain limit on their ability to, to block, you know, certain inoculums. 
But even so, you need quite a lot of virus. And Mina is saying in his argument that you probably need 100,000 copies per mil or maybe a million or more copies per mil before you get to the point where you're really contagious to other people, right? So you need a lot of virus. You need to be shedding a lot of virus. And we know that at the peak of viral transmission, it's actually a couple days before you show symptoms. That's when people are most infectious, and then it comes down. Now, if you're testing, you know, like the staff are doing here at BU, and we're doing it once a week, the probability that your test is going to happen to land on that one day when you hit the peak is around one in seven, right? But those other six days, you're more likely to, you know, you might catch it in the first couple of days, but you're also, it's probable that you're, you're you know, you're, you're going to catch it on the drift down when the, the virus is detectable by PCR because it's so good, but that you've already fallen below the level of infectiousness. So what, right? That's the problem, is that, that the, the infrequent PCR testing is, is you know, almost by definition going to find lots of virus you know, in people who are no longer contagious, and yet we're going to quarantine them. And so the quarantining part of this is not very efficient. On the other hand, you can still use those data to do contact tracing, and so you can do you know, secondary containment. So it's not useless, at all useless, mm -hmm. but it is limited because what you'd really like to do is to be able to capture them just at the point where they became contagious and quarantine them then. That's the most useful time. But you can't easily do that if you're testing once every seven to 10 days. It's just not, you know, statistically it's not possible. And so what he's saying is that instead, you know, because PCR is expensive and fussy and takes, you know, a day or two to turn around, or in the cases of, you know, many parts of the country, two weeks it turns out to turn around a result. Instead of that, what if we used a, you know, a worse test like a like an antibody uh, capture assay on a on a you know piece of cellulose, basically something that acted like a pregnancy test, where you could suck on a swab and then you'd have a result in at home, at, you know, so you could do this yourself in about fifteen minutes. So you know you can kind of imagine the model where you get up, you brush your teeth, you spit a lot, or maybe you do it the other way around. You get up and you do your COVID test, and then you brush your teeth for fifteen minutes while you wait for the results. And so the dentist is happy too. And, mm. and now you have your answer. Am I okay to go to work today? Because your, your, you know, your COVID test is positive or negative. Now, those tests are much less sensitive than the PCR, right? Which means that they're going to be able to detect a much lower, a much higher concentration of a virus before you get to the point where the, the test can no longer pick it up. But that's okay because the stuff that the PCR is picking up is also irrelevant. It's too low to be contagious. And so you're, what you're missing is the drift down period. So you don't know, you don't see the far right of the tail, but from the purposes of isolating someone who's now contagious, the antigen tests are perfectly able to capture someone as they hit the peak, right? Because the concentration of virus is so high and that's the one you care about. And so if you could do that every day at home for a dollar a day per person, you would now actually have a much better way of mapping the epidemic and coordinating your, your containment efforts, starting with, oh my gosh, I'm infected. I am contagious. I should not go to work. I should stay away mm -hmm. from my family. And I need to call someone to help me, you know, do the contact tracing. And so he, basically his argument is that it's not that he's saying a, a worse test is better than PCR. He's not saying that at all. What he's saying is that a worse test that could be done daily is better than a, a better test that could only be done weekly. And that actually that it's the frequency of the test that is the benefit. The more frequently you can do it, the more valuable the test becomes. And that Frequency, the benefit of the frequency overwhelms the loss in sensitivity. And I thought it was such an interesting argument and, and so almost certainly true. 
I I totally agree with you, Chris. I thought this was fascinating. I heard him on it. It, it, I mean, it got so much interest. I heard him on the political gab fest that Slate does, and it's yeah. I'm I'm so with you on this one. I think it's a really really interesting take. Yeah, I think the other two things about his his argument is, is that these PCR tests that don't come back for ten days are thoroughly useless in terms totally. of totally. Pop, population control. What are you going to do? The other thing is that. The other thing is that that tail that you're talking about, Chris, can last for weeks. That's right. But nobody's been able to really show with any degree of, of, of volume that, that the, those positive PCR tests beyond 12 to 14 days after the onset of symptoms are, in fact, infectious. Those are shards of RNA. They're not whole infectious viruses. It's sort of underscoring the, the argument even more. Right. The, 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 a lot the of the positive tests that come back are not reflective of infectiousness. So in a way, the, the, the sensitivity of the PCR is also having the effect of driving us all a little bit crazy because it keeps detecting stuff that doesn't matter. Yeah. So cool. So cool. All right. Well, I will go last. I got a short one, but I do have a question for you guys. Oh. Why, why do we have eyes? All to the see. better to see you with my love. See, I, I always assumed that was the only reason we had eyes, was to see. But apparently, uh, another reason that we have eyes is to, uh, as an anti-predator signal. Huh. So hmm. that the predator sees that you see the predator, and then the predator doesn't attack, and it waits until you turn around to attack. And you can, you can see this with, like, fish that evolve, uh, that develop uh, eye-looking things on their, on their mm. sides that sort of increase their ability to, you know, protect themselves. Uh, so there was this group, uh, this was published in Communications Biology by Cameron Radford and colleagues, in which they asked the question, so they were working with cattle in, in Botswana, where people are worried about lions and leopards uh, taking out their, their cattle. And so they asked the question, does painting eye spots on the backsides of cows <laughs> increase their survival? And so because they're cows, you can do a very nice, large, randomized trial, which they did. And they randomized to one of three groups. So they either got uh, nothing painted on them. They got cross marks painted on them, on their backsides. Or they got eye spots painted on their backsides. And they found a statistically significant reduction in the number of cattle that were killed over 25 days uh, if they had the eye spots painted on them compared no. to having no markings on them. Yeah. That is awesome. Now, that said, I do have a little quibble with this study is they they did do a Kaplan-Meier curve of their results. Oh. And there were, there were no cattle with uh, the eye spots on them that were killed, but the, the percent that were killed in the eye spot group and the, uh, sorry, in the cross mark group and the unmark group was uh, less than 2% in both cases. So a little hard to draw very strong conclusions here, but still I thought it was a, a pretty clever idea and a very, you know, it's something that you can easily test when you're, you're dealing with, well, creatures that don't require informed consent, I guess. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. And large numbers are easy to do. I, I found a similar article to this because, because you know, I'm a big fan of Calvin and Hobbes. And there's, you know, a segment where Calvin wears a back-facing mask to persuade Hobbes not to attack him. It doesn't work. Mm -hmm. But so I, I, I just Googled, you know, back-facing masks and tigers. And there's an article in the New York Times from 1989 where they did this experiment in humans in the Ganges really? Delta in India. Where, where people were living in a, in a tiger preserve and the people were getting eaten at the rate of about 60 people a year by the tigers. 
And so they deployed 2,500 tiger masks to a bunch of people. And in the next year or so, three years, they say, and there's a quote, for the past three years, no one wearing a mask has been killed. And they, have, they cited tigers have been seen following people wearing the mask, but they have not attacked. But in contrast, 29 people were eaten while not wearing masks. So they felt that this was, uh, this was a winner. Huh. Huh. So I so think I'm there's gonna... two data points here. I Very think cool. I think it's the way to go I now. I think we it. should all be wearing wearing uh, tiger masks and right. eyes painted on the back of our heads. I'm going to wear a tiger mask while I'm eating my pizza. I think that's a really <laughs> smart idea. You'll live forever. <laughs> well, that is the end of our program. If you got any feedback on this or any other episode, or you want to suggest a study or a topic for us to take on, you can tweet us at, at @pophealthyx, or you can tweet me at, at @profmadfox, or Chris at id.gillardon at, at @dthea1, or you can find us on the Population Health Exchange website at www.pophealthex.org. We want to thank Leslie Delali and Director of Lifelong Learning at BU School of Public Health for supporting the podcast. And Nick Guler for sound editing and being the best at finding a new barber. By golly, thank you, Nick and Leslie. <laughs> thank you both. So thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed it. And we hope you will download our next episode.